13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you can me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people... Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. And ask them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app. I'm reminded this week of an old commercial that ran on TV in the early 1990s for some sort of facial cleanser. There's a crowded high school cafeteria full of teenagers shouting loudly during lunchtime. The camera pans to one lunch table where a group of girls is discussing their facial cleansing routines and the anxieties associated with teenage acne. And one young girl at the table says, well, my dad's a dermatologist, and he says... And before she can even finish her sentence, complete silence falls over the whole cafeteria. Hundreds of students sit hushed and wrapped in attention to listen. And the spokesperson voiceover says, when a dermatologist talks, everyone listens. And I can't exactly remember what product they were selling back then in 1992, but I promise you I begged my mom to get me some. I'm Clay Aiken. It's Wednesday, October 28th. And no, Politicon isn't hawking facial cleanser this week. But with less than a week to go until the biggest election day in modern American history, we find ourselves feeling about election experts the same way as those high schoolers did about dermatologists. So this week, for our final episode before the 2020 election, when a polling expert talks, we listen. And few folks know more about political polls than the folks at 538. Claire Malone is senior political writer for one of the most trusted of political prognosticators, 538.com. She joins us this week, and we will bask together in her expertise. Claire Malone, thank you so much for joining us. Do you, you can't possibly, you're not old enough. Do you, you don't remember that ad, do you? Well, I don't know how old you think I am, but I think that might be a Stridex commercial. Does that is that what right? it was? See, I was thinking it might be Noxima, and I didn't want to be wrong. Either one of those. I mean, Noxima had the kind of like girls by the swimming pool thing. I don't know. I remember Stridex wipes coming like that feels <laughs> the, like the right thing. But that is, but I have all week long, I've known you were going to be coming on. And all I can think is, is there anyone in the world more in demand right now than you guys at 538? I just have to imagine you constantly have to be talking. Is everyone in your life constantly asking you, what's going to happen? Please tell me what's going to happen. What's going to happen? <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I've trained my my sort of family and friends and loved ones to people don't ask me that many questions anymore. I think they I think they realized that I just when I talk to to family, I just want to talk about anything else besides politics. But yes, how could people not be, you know, tuned in and interested in what's happening? So so I definitely end up getting a lot of questions 
by email about like, oh, what's what should I make of this Pennsylvania poll? And I just I always text or write back, average the polls. So that's, <laughs> don't talk to me. Here's our website link. I'll tell you, I'm not going to lie. It is a shortcut on my home screen. <laughs> the 538 polling page is a shortcut, and I probably check it five to ten times a day. That's and good. I, the clicks I am helping, your, the clicks are, I'm helping yeah. your clicks, right? Exactly. I'm giving you so many. But I, th- I feel like I saw something on the website the other day that even said, nothing has changed in the last five minutes since you checked before. Um, <laughs> it's It's got to be, why, is, is it because we people were so surprised in 2016 that you think that that folks are so tuned in to what you guys specifically are doing over at 538 is that they're looking for some sort of certainty why are we so interested in yeah. polls when they kind of didn't hold up 4 years ago yeah it's interesting so in 2016 i think we always had you know, this dedicated contingent of people like Clay Aiken who were refreshing <laughs> 538 every yes, few I minutes. <laughs> um, and then, yes, obviously the, you know, Trump won and that surprised everyone. And I think what's been really interesting about watching 2020 is watching people grapple with kind of what the data is telling them. And by the way, I think Americans in general are more tuned into polls and data, in part because of Trump's um, loss. I think it made people realize that, you know, you know, when we when we at 538 talk about Trump, you know, Biden has an 88 out of 100 chance of winning the election. That means that he's got those 12 other chances, those 12 other universes in which he wins. So Trump winning made people grasp that, you know, one in 10 chance much better, I think. Um, And I think it's made people... Um, have this interesting reaction where they see the data this year. And the data has actually been pretty stable for Biden the whole way along. I mean, I still have to say, caveat, like Trump could certainly still win, but it's a bit more of a stable race than it was in, in 2016 in some ways. There are fewer undecided voters. But also in the media, I think people in, you know who cover politics and who talk about politics uh, you know, on cable or who write in newspapers, those people also have these emotional and professional um, hangovers from 2016, mm-hmm. where they want to be extra careful. And so I do think you see a lot more couching and I about you know who might win the election. And I actually think that's good, but there's certainly a lot of nervous energy in general in America right now around the election. Nervous energy is perhaps a, a kind way of putting it. Um, there's, you know, because there, I do think there's a lot of bad energy to use sort of like a woo-woo yeah. new age <laughs> term here. Um, but yeah, I certainly think a lot of people are having those um, those 2016 flashbacks right now. So let's, if you can help us just break down exactly what people, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm not going to ask you to give us 538's <laughs> proprietary model and formula, but when people look at a, at a polling average, they're not necessarily specifically looking at five different results added together and divided by five. Are they certain? Certain polls have more weight with five thirty eight or with Real Clear Politics or some of these polling averagers. How do you determine which polls are good and which ones are not as good? Like what goes into that? Yeah, and hold on, let me turn off that email that just dinged. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a great question, and let me just uh, for for your listeners who aren't familiar with five thirty eight, I can just kind of walk them through things. Please. So. Um, so for starters, 
we um, were kind of known for this, this thing called the presidential model, which I'll get to in a second. But let's start off with there are lots of different pollsters in the world, and not all of them are great at their jobs. So what we try to do is um, we try to give ratings, you know, A to F, for every single pollster out there. And, and we've, we have a pollster rating page that you can go to. Um, but usually you can pretty, pretty reliably count on the polls done by all the TV networks. That includes Fox, ABC News, NBC, CNN, and the major newspapers. So the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, those tend to, Washington Post tend to have really good A-rated pollsters. So we've got different polls that are, some are good, some are bad. Then you have polling averages, which is what we do and somewhere like Real Clear Politics does, which is they actually do just take all the polls and they average them together. And that's your polling average. We don't do anything extra special to it. And then you have the presidential forecast model or the Senate forecast model, which is the <laughs> which is the proprietary uh, Nate's brain plus the brains of lots of other smart people at 538, where they, they throw together, yes, the, you know, the polling uh, averages taking into account, you know, that some of the pollsters are better than others. They take into account economic factors, um, historical, you know, the, all the elections and the way that elections have behaved in the past. If I'm being honest, Clay, I don't even know all the, the things that go into the presidential model. Um, but um, but that gives us that spits out that probability that people talk about so much. But when I look at, say, Kennepiak versus mm-hmm. Monmouth, and the two of them have a poll, each of them have polled, say, Pennsylvania, and they get somewhat different results. Does each pollster actually, when they are determining their likely voter model, Mm -hmm. are they determining their likely voter model based on who they think is going to show up? Or is it based specifically on who told them they would show up? Um, it is, it is likely voters. That's generally what people do. And it's different. I mean, you've just named two pretty good pollsters and, um, the people who run those polls might have different, um, theories of how to weight things in order to get the most accurate outcome. So that's what happened. That's what went wrong in 2016, right? They, that some of these pollsters may not have waited for education as much as they should have, or may not have taken into account that, less educated white voters would be turning out and they were surprised by that. So is that, is that something that they all, that Monmouth sat down and said, okay, we're going to, we're going to make sure we have twice as many high school educated white voters in our model. And Kennepi Act said, we're going to make sure we have three times as many. I mean, do you you understand what I'm asking? I'm asking, are they deciding what this model, what this likely voter um, audience is? They're deciding, um, yes, they're deciding how to weight those voters. So you, you, and you brought up education and that's exactly right. So they'll, they'll, um, you know, they'll call 10 people and two of them will be, uh, white people without a college education. And based on that pollster's view of the electorate and, and how to be accurate, they'll say, okay, well, this person's weight will weight this person's response a little bit more in the final result. So we'll give emphasis to their education so that they're, you know, so that they might lean more Trump and, and we get a more accurate picture. But, but yes, like what you've just um, laid out is exactly it, is that those, pol- those pollsters have a general, very educated, I, I guess, idea about um, how people's demographic group and 
But we don't know how they're doing that. They keep that stuff proprietary for themselves. They keep it secret or do all these pollsters say, oh, this is how much we're weighting black voters this year? You know, you can go to a pollster's methodology and see, like, was this a live voter poll, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think they publish generally like that super detailed thing. Although I think that, um, you know, we actually did, a couple of my colleagues at 538 did a a survey of pollsters and kind of asked them, what are you doing differently in 2020 than -hmm. you did in 2016? So people can take a look at that that because it's certainly something that a lot of people who do polling for a living were really thinking about is that they, they wanted to give people a more accurate read on what, you know, what the electorate's doing during a kind of changing time period for different demographic groups. Do you think, do you, do you feel, and do your colleagues feel that most of these pollsters have accounted for these problems in 2016? Or is there, what do you think? I know you're, you're, you're looking at the numbers with far more education than I am and, and a lot of people are. But do you think that they have done it well enough? Have they fixed the should problem trust, of 2016? Should we trust the polls? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm trying to ask it in a different <laughs> yeah. way than the other 20 people who've asked you. No, today. no, but, but um, <laughs> I appreciate it. I think that we, yes, I think we should trust the polls. I think, um, or, you know, we should, we should trust that people are making good faith efforts to um, to not miss the people that they missed in 2016 or to not miss the political dynamics that they missed in 2016. Um, but, you know, I think it's, people should also remember that it's, you know, <laughs> polling is hard and imperfect. And, you know, there's lots of things about the polling industry that's changing in part because everyone uses cell phones now, you know, like, uh, you might not be likely to pick up a random number that's calling your cell phone or your phone might be programmed actually to send those people to voicemail, um, we're trying to make internet polling better and, and, you know, have it be more representative. So I think the, the, the answer is yes, but also be aware that, you know, pollsters release their margins of error with these polls too, right? So while Trump won and it was a surprise last time, his win was actually within, you know, the polling margin of error, right? So I think that's also important is that, that people need to realize that they give those margins of error for, for a reason, um, and so just to kind of, you know. And and in 530, to 538's credit, I think you were the only outlet that was saying in the days leading up to 2016, uh, you know, we're talking about a polling error difference yeah. in Michigan and Wisconsin. So I remember walking through Central Park in the days <laughs> before the election on 2016, hearing Nate Silver say, it could just be a polling error and thinking, oh, shit. <laughs> Yeah, so and it, I was not as shocked as a lot of people were. Yeah, um, but it's it's but it's also I mean it's funny I was um, I'm kind of going back and reading some 2016 coverage and <laughs> frankly like emails I wrote in 2016 around this time trying to get my head back in that place. But you know on October 31st I think Nate wrote an article that was that basically said hey there's about a 10 percent chance that uh, Trump wins the electoral college but loses the popular vote. And obviously that's a scenario that happened. So I think that's a good example for your listeners of it was a 10% chance of that happening and that happened, you know? So that's, that's a, that's sort of a perfect example of these, these probabilities and, and uncertainties that we're all trying to wrap our brains around. I think Frank Luntz, I I don't remember where I heard him say it, but in the past few days said that if pollsters make the same errors this year um, that they did in 2016 or make similar errors or their, or their last, their final polls turn out to be 
off as much as they were in 2016, that it'll be the end of polling. Do you think that's, do you, that <laughs> no one will trust polls anymore? Do you think that's true? Do you think there's a, a higher higher risk right now of get, for getting things right? Well, I think Frank Luntz runs focus groups and maybe has a vested interest in yeah. people <laughs> right. trusting focus <laughs> okay. groups more than polls. No, I mean, listen, I think that... Um, I think, you know, if, if the polls, if pollsters, you know, once again, find that they, you know, had gaps in their knowledge, that they'll they'll make good faith efforts to fix them. And, and maybe, you know, the media will continue to get smarter about um, about how well, we do have a very short attention people. span as Americans. So we always sure. say I'm never going to trust the polls again. For I'll sure. never I mean, watch American Idol again if Clay Aiken loses. And <laughs> lo and behold, damn it, they did anyway. Do you how watch? No, God, I don't. But I was just kidding. I was just kidding. Nobody ever fall. I'm moving to Canada if Trump wins. But you know what? Your ass is still here. You're voting again. Um, do you, are there, are there states that have not been talked about in this uh, recently in the past, as much in the past few weeks or months that you are specifically thinking folks should pay attention to more? Um, you know, I think, um, Probably your listeners kind of know the, you know, the the Florida and the Michigan and the Wisconsin kind of interesting states to watch. I'm kind of interested in in Minnesota um, and Ohio uh, and to see which way those those states go. States that I think, you know, maybe I didn't uh, expect to be as as on the margin as they are. Um, so Minnesota, so Minnesota, that would that would suggest then that. A state that w- that you see it as a, as a remote possibility, even that a state that went to Hillary Clinton might actually switch to Trump. Yeah, um, and, and so so yes, so there's lots of inter- <laughs> there's lots of interesting stuff going going on in the polls. I'm actually trying to pull up here what it what is Minnesota right now. Hold on, I got my Sorry. shortcut now, girl. I can find it. You want to pull up Minnesota? So it's 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 it's. <laughs> Um, I think Minnesota went in 2016. I think it's the other way around, right? That in 2016 it was Trump. Minnesota went to, to Hillary just barely in 2016. Just barely. So yeah, sorry. Okay, so it's but Biden is up by eight right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so so hopefully, if you're a average, Biden supporter, yeah. you're hoping that it should stay in that. I mean, there. Yeah. If you look at places like if you look at places like Montana, where Trump won by. 40 points in 2016, but currently, um, I think the most recent polls out of Montana have shown Trump leading by, your 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 model right now has Trump ahead by 6.7% in Montana. So in these states, one has to assume that in these states where Trump had huge leads in 2016, and he's now winning for sure, but not winning by nearly as much, I think in West Virginia, he won by 40 points, and now he's leading by something like 18 that it doesn't it doesn't bode very well for Trump to be able to pick up any states if he's losing his if he's shrinking his margins even in the most red of states is that wrong yeah that's that's right that's right and i think even you know the idea that that um texas which is usually just a a guaranteed trove of um votes for republican candidates uh in the way that you know california is a big trove of electoral votes uh, for Democrats, typically, the fact that Texas is is kind of, you know, you know, Trump is being made to compete in a state like that. That's pretty significant um, because a, a lot of what the, you know, the end stages of these campaigns are about are kind of almost, you know, one campaign making the other campaign 
waste their their money and energy in kind of defending their home turf. Um, so I think the fact that that Trump kind of has to do that um, speaks to the fact that he's kind of back on his heels a little bit uh, this time around. What is what do we what should we should folks take from turnout? Um, I'm in North Carolina now, and I believe that oh. as of today or yesterday, something like 85% of the people who, 85% of the number that voted in all of 2016, early vote, mail-in vote, day of voting, um, 85% of that number has already voted. So most folks, am I wrong in believing most folks are expecting that turnout this particular year will be higher than anyone can remember? Is that right? Yes, correct. It's going to be a pretty high turnout election. Um, I think you who's know, that help? <laughs> well, um, potentially it means that we're seeing we're going to see maybe more young voters, um, which I think would would tend to help um, Democrats if we're kind of you know stereotyping the broad swath of young people. Um, but again, I would I would also caution people. You know, it's also you know it's it's a don't worry, we're not going to take anything you say to the <laughs> bank right now, girl. You're free to talk. <laughs> say what you want to say. Think, yeah, yeah. I think what is uh, what is notable is that there are, you know, in 2016, there were a lot of undecided voters, and there aren't that many undecided voters right now. So, um, I th- and I think we've seen over the past four years. And, I did and- say to somebody the other night when I watched the, after the, after the debate, they had those undecided voters. And I said, every damn one of those has decided they just wanted to be on TV. Because I don't know that I believe <laughs> that anyone is sitting there going, hmm, I really can't decide between. I mean, you're, you're talking about apples and oranges, right? So yeah. if, you, if you're a Trump voter, that's, that's you, that's fine. But it's not like you're kind of thinking about it, you know, and not, not sure yet, right? Well, although you, you might have these, you know, let's, let's stereotype it, the kind of like uh, the the white guy in Michigan who didn't go to college, but, or did go to college and doesn't really like Trump. It's been a lifelong Republican and he voted for Trump in 2016, but geez, you know, COVID's really kind of (laughs) thrown him over the edge here. I mean, we should note here that older people, particularly older white people really voted for Trump in 2016. And he has suffered massive losses of that elderly vote or support among elderly people. So, like, I do think there are some people who who are <laughs> kind of on the margins with Trump. Um, aren't, aren't there some polls that sort of take that into account? What is the one? Can you explain the one that, that USC, University of Southern California does? Don't they have one block of permanent voters who they have consistently polled to see if their opinions have changed? Yeah, this is a tracking poll. Yeah. How, so does a tra- How do tracking polls work? Help us out. Sure. A tracking poll means that they uh, they get one group of people and they stick with the same group of people for a year and they ask them essentially the same questions over and over again and and they kind of it's it's almost like you know taking their temperature over the course of uh, a year however long it goes and you know they want to have a certain number of Trump supporters and a certain number of you know now Biden supporters, um, and they want to see how those people feel at any given time so that you can kind of track the movement of demographic groups as big events happen. So like one big event that we look at in the in recent polling history is when Trump announced that he had COVID back in early October. Right. And we de- did see in some of those polling averages, and I don't know, I don't actually know 
you know, what this particular tracking poll found. But um, you did see a, a dip in support for Trump uh, right after his his COVID diagnosis in the first debate happened. And then it was down for a little bit and then it kind of ticked back up to sort of that median. But but those sorts of things help us get a sense for uh, where did the where did the averages and where did the opinions of these different groups shift and what mm-hmm. news event or you know thing that happened? So they've got to be world. very careful to make sure they're not finding people who are dyed in the wool. I mean, they have to choose their their pot of people pretty carefully to make sure they're not such party or candidate loyalists that they're never going to change their mind, right? Well, I think they probably want to have they probably have some people who are who are probably pretty like partisans pretty partisan. But I think that there was a, f- a famous example in 2016 of one of these tracking polls where there was only like two or three black voters and one of the black voters dropped out or something or changed their opinion. And so it sort of wildly threw off the metrics hmm. for that entire demographic group. So, you know, I think, you know, if it's not, if it's not done entirely correctly, it can, it can, or if it, or if there's an interesting fluke that happens, you know. So <laughs> let me ask you a question that you probably asked a hundred thousand times also, but bear with us. Cause I really wonder why the hell do we even do national polling? What's the point? Is there a benefit to someone like you who is looking at these polls and trying to glean information from them? Is there a reason that national polling matters at all? Or is it just as I, the uneducated me believes a waste of energy? Cause we don't elect presidents that way. Damn Clay, this is like existential uh, questions. With but Clay but, we, but I mean, far I wonder. We don't. No, I, I, I know, exa- <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I mean, we got. Yeah. Uh, that's why people were so shocked because when Hillary lost, because she definitely was winning the national vote. But every day when I hit my refresh button for my five thirty eight poll page, there are still so many national polls, and I think. Why do I? But so there has to be an answer. Why you must care somehow. People must. Somebody must care, right? Yes, we certainly care. And I think um, what you're getting at, and what probably a lot of people at five thirty eight would say, is like we wish that there were more resources devoted to uh, high quality state polls because those do give us a very clear picture. Again, because we have the elector. I think. I think that the short answer for why we have national and state polls is because we have both the popular vote and the electoral college, right? Which is like, there are some states that matter more in the sense of, you know, under the system that we have, candidates cater to those voters more than other voters. And therefore people want to have really good snapshots of what's going on in those states at any particular point in time. It would be great if we existed in like a media business world where newspapers were able to poll all 50 states in a high quality way. We don't have that world. But I will also say that there is a utility and there's probably an a greater emphasis put on on this because we have mostly national media organizations now covering these elections not high quality state operations unfortunately because of media consolidation which is another story but but <laughs> these but these national organizations place an emphasis on the national polls because there is a sense that we should know what all of america is thinking overall, because we do have this debate going on about like, 
you know, the popular vote versus the electoral college? Should we know the, <laughs> you know, should we know the overall feelings of Americans? That just makes, of just that the just state makes level Democrats feelings? frustrated. I mean, it just I, <laughs> frustrates them when they see that their candidates ahead, but it all boils down to Florida or Pennsylvania or somewhere else. So, I mean, it's, it's just going to take a state like Alaska completely surprising the crap out of somebody one year and, you know, nobody polled up there. So no one realized that it was turning blue all of a sudden, you know. Yeah. Is, Maybe Alaska should there, take that into account and sort of they might, make a play for relevance. They might pull it on us right now. I mean, they, yeah. they, 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 I, we spoke with uh, Jessica Taylor from uh, Cook Political Report a few weeks ago, and she said that was a state that she was watching. Maybe not on the oh, presidential level. No, not on the presidential level. She was talking about the Senate race specifically. But, um, you know, that's a state that tends to be ignored by a lot of folks. But apparently, they have a Senate race this year that folks may end up being surprised by, you know, yeah, folks serve to, to that, to that end. Why do you think that states like South Carolina are polling in the way they are, where you've got a state that is almost inevitably going to vote for Trump at the presidential level, but is the polling at least right now shows a razor thin race between uh, Jamie Harrison and Lindsey Graham. What does that say to you? Why why all of a sudden did this incredibly conservative state perhaps decide to vote for a Democrat at the Senate? Really? Maybe? What? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And probably in some ways you would have better insights this as as a Carolinian, obviously not a South Carolinian. Yes, we are very different. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you know, like let's... I think some of it is, um, so Jamie Harrison, who's running against Lindsey Graham, is a black candidate who what I, I would call a moderate pragmatist in the mold of like a Stacey Abrams in Georgia, where he's not, you know, Jamie Harrison isn't running to be like your super lefty guy. He's saying like, I've been in South Carolina politics for years and years and years. I'm a rational choice. Lindsey Graham has like made a whole switcheroo with Trump. I don't know if you should, you know, trust that guy. Um, like I, he, he's almost offering himself as like a, obviously he's not Biden, right? But he's saying, hey, you white college educated suburban voters who live in the Charleston area, right? A pretty wealthy, uh, you know, it's still a Southern city, but it, 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 it still has probably some of the voting characteristics that lean blue that a lot of just cities right. across America have. Um, but also, I think Jamie Harrison is um, will be you know there there's some benefit to having a big turnout election, particularly in South Carolina, which has a huge um, pool of black voters who are um, by and large Democratic voters and might want to come out and support Jamie Harrison. So I think that's I think that's a case of having a pretty good candidate in this race and making it a lot closer um, than it probably should have been under just like you know, blank political conditions. By the way, to that, to, a little bit to that end, the black vote has, well, at least on a, on a high profile level, 50 Cent, Ice Cube, mm-hmm. Trump has gotten some, Kanye West, even though I guess he's running himself, um, Trump has gotten some pretty marquee name endorsements from black males. Are mm-hmm. Is there a, a shift of, or in any movement from, black males towards Trump or is that, I mean, is our polls showing that? I think there is a, oh, this is uh, I didn't prepare myself for this. I do believe that there is a slight movement 
among black men, we should say by and large, black men support Joe Biden. But I think what's key here and what you're pointing out is um, there's a gender gap in general for how people view Trump. Um, 2016 had the biggest gender gap in the history of American elections, which basically really? means men. Yeah, I think it was something like a 20 point difference between men and women. Oh, women I voted think we're going to beat that this year. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but I think that extends to you know beyond just white men. It, it goes to you know what uh, Hispanics, Hispanic men, or black men. Yeah, might have a more favorable view of Donald Trump um, because I think Trump does voice some, um, you know, to use, to use the trite, like, internet word. I think a lot of Americans don't love PC culture. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they like, you know, they like someone who kind of pokes at that. It's, you know, it's why people like Joe Rogan, right? There's a certain desire for um, bursting the, you know, the bubble of artifice, like going past things that you just like, like Donald Trump style and, this is um, also something that's polled on, too, right? I mean, people, Democrats and Republicans alike, can see data somewhere. Maybe not. Maybe we're not paying attention to it now because we're looking at these horse races. But but everyone can see data that, that shows how many people appreciate or how people feel about PC culture or, or identity politics. Is there, it's not as if, though, that's, that people aren't aware of that. Do Demo- are Democrats choosing to just not worry about that right now? I think that they don't have to, I think there was a ton of talk during the Democratic primary about identity politics and whether or not they wanted to turn the Democratic Party into that. I would say if you polled people on the phrase identity politics or PC culture, Democrats and Republicans would say, I don't like that, right? It, right, has, right. A, it has a negative sheen on it. And, and so you would people, you know, Democratic primary voters said, well, we chose the white male older candidate for our uh, candidate this time around because we didn't want to be stereotyped as the identity uh, politics party. Now, I'd say that this summer with the racial unrest and the protests in America about police violence against people of color would prove that. Identity politics isn't like an annoying internet thing. It's a thing that a lot of Americans actually care deeply about. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of it's about how people and parties package it. And frankly, I think, you know, the fact that on the Democratic side of things, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley are women of color who are sort of seen as the face of that quote unquote identity politics movement there's probably a little bit of misogyny and racism tied up in that where people say we've got more important things to worry about, which is, you know, a bit, a bit dismissive of pretty decent slice of the American population and the the way they're sort of trying to make their way in the world. And that goes into a whole bigger question of, you know, the really rapidly shifting demographics of America and how, um, you know, the white experience in America will not be the predominant one in about 20 years. So I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast, Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love, sex, or to hedge your reproductive odds. I think women have this ability to plant these mental bombs into a man's mind. But the thing about humor is that the value of humor, it goes up. We're wired to reproduce. To them, it was a super female. It was a giant female. 
and they were lured into um, into trying to mate with it. The science of love is fascinating. It's a bizarre form of biohacking, really. If you have the 7 or plus gene, you are more likely to be involved in an affair, yes. That's where some of the research gets really intriguing. There's so many ways to be a human. But I must say, sex between three people can get complicated. In a nutshell, the Kinsey scale looked at two things, sexual fantasies and actual sexual behavior. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. On September 17, 2009, 24-year-old Maitrese Richardson disappeared without a trace in the woods near Malibu, California. She had been arrested at a beachside restaurant for failing to pay a tab and taken to the Lost Hills Sheriff's Station. You know, I mean, she's not from that area, and I would hate to wake up to a morning report, girl, lost somewhere with her head chopped off. The police released her just after midnight with no car, no cell phone, no money. She doesn't know the area. She's never been in your area. Well, I think she's depressed. That's what has me Is that what, That's worth that. you more than just her... Okay. Maitrese disappeared into the darkness and was never seen alive again. I'm Katherine Townsend, host of the podcast, Helen Gone. We're going to try to find out what really happened to Maitrese Richardson. School of Humans and iHeartRadio present Helen Gone, Season 3. Listen to Helen Gone on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of places where demographics, or especially where Democrats have expected and wanted demographics to change for a while, um, Texas. I'm I'm just looking at my shortcut here. Uh, Siena <laughs> College, Siena College, um, New York Times upshot um, is an example of this not being true. But outside of them. Any pollster you have rated higher than C right now from the last week, Kennepiak has Biden at 47, Trump at 47 in Texas. Morning Consult has Biden at 48, Trump at 47 in Texas. University of Texas um, at Tyler has Biden at 48, Trump at 45. Um, Data for Progress, which I think is a is a it's liberal, yeah, liberal poll, yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll we'll leave that out. But but the others. I mean, University of Texas at Tyler, Morning Consult, Kennepiak, these are not biased necessarily polls. They're showing, I mean, come on now, yeah. Claire. Really, Texas? Texas now? <laughs> really? Is it, is, it, is it just a pipe dream? Is it the type of thing that we're going to get, Democrats are going to get really close at and not be able to bring home? Or is Texas actually really a state that might flip on the presidential level this year? Uh, it could, and if it doesn't flip this year, I think it, it's certainly entering a phase where we'll be talking about Texas a lot more for the next couple of decades as as more of a purple state, you know, kind of in the way that people used to talk about Ohio or North Carolina as more purple. Um, I guess North Carolina still could we be still pur- purple. purple. It's, it's still, still pretty purple. It's still purple. Well, but, uh, <laughs> but but I will but, say to that to to where you're headed with Texas, I've I've asked people in the past few weeks, and so I'll ask you the same thing. Do we really do you really think that in states like North Carolina that voted for Obama in 2008 then mm-hmm. voted for Romney in 2012, mm-hmm. Trump in 2016, mm-hmm. I think is going to go for Biden this time but you know I just got to vote once unfortunately. Um <laughs> but and Texas that might or might do we really think these states are trending towards um Democrat candidates or do we think that this year might have to be pulled out of the average like the Russian judges score because this is just a very different year. I'm not 100% convinced that in that North Carolina has shifted 
to the left for the long term so much as it might be that Trump is such a unique candidate mm-hmm. that that places like North Carolina, places like Texas, places like Georgia just might not be willing to put up with this particular Republican, but but might yeah. go back to them in the future. Do you, What do you think is the case? I think the way to think about this is um, there has been a, for people who are super into politics, there has been a, you know, red and blue, you guys all know the map I'm talking about, map in your heads that for the past couple of decades has kind of had similar states being the most important or the swing states, you know. Um, And I think what's going to start happening, and perhaps 2020 will be the first election, is we're going to see a lot of new new states pop onto that purple uh, or swing state map. So we're going to have potentially places like Texas and Arizona and Georgia start to move into more of the purpley zone that, you know, maybe a North Carolina or an Ohio kind of place, state. And and that's not unheard of. I mean, if you remember that Stratix commercial, you remember that Noxzema commercial, you remember that it used to be Missouri that was was like the bellwether. Missouri used to be the state that you never knew which way it was going to go. And nobody's betting any money on Missouri this year. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, what, uh, Bill Clinton was the last Democrat to win a bunch of these states in the Georgia, South, right. Tennessee, like Arkansas. Al Gore didn't even win Tennessee, right. which is maybe yeah. maybe even a whole Al Gore, I mean, well, Al Gore I mean, problem. Th- South Dakota, North Dakota, those were, that was Tom Daschle land and Byron yeah. Dorgan land in the 90s. And and the Northeast, you, the, the, you, the Northeast yeah, exactly. was Republican too. So are the parties switching bases, switching bases in these states completely? Well, it's an interesting question. And let me let me go back to your North Carolina point, right, where you were saying, okay, it voted for Obama in 2008, but then voted Republican for the next two elections, like, wither North Carolina, right? Yeah. I think a lot of that depends on, and a lot of this map depends on the direction of the GOP, right? Like, uh-huh. like Reagan was, Reagan did great things for the Republican Party, if you're talking about just an electoral vote kind of thing. And Trump could potentially be doing terrible things to the Republican Party if you're thinking about an electoral vote kind of thing, because you might turn off all those, uh, you know, Romney uh, voters in North Carolina if you if you uh, nominate like a I don't know I'm trying to think of a good Trump esque candidate in 2024. Like let's say Matt Gates. <laughs> yeah, or even you know who would be in a more interesting example of, of this is like Tom Cotton. Who right. is who has the like Ivy League pedigree, but is a very conservative, has adopted Trumpism, I would say pretty wholeheartedly, but with a he has more of a um a polite sheen to it, you know. If you call it polite sheen, I call it <laughs> personality of a walleye salmon. So I don't know if he's necessarily the person that you want to nominate. But like, but like, but but what if they go, what if the Republicans instead of the Tom Cotton, Matt Gates, kind of super conservative, tr- you know, more Trumpian strain of things, what if they nominated Nikki Haley, right? Like right. You but know, but so much of it's not about policy anyway, right? I mean, it, it, Trump Trump doesn't necessarily align himself with conservative policies. It's about who people trust. I mean, Ben Sass is incredibly conservative, but he is a little bit more approachable and relatable than a Tom Cotton might be. Yeah, and I mean, I those think- people tend to do well in states like North Carolina 
and perhaps even South Carolina, because, you know, it's not necessarily about Lindsey Graham's policy positions there so much as it's about this, can we trust him or will he become a new person after Trump is gone? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think the thing that that the Trump era has revealed about politics, and frankly, particularly the politics of the Republican Party, is you know, if you look at the Republican Party platform in 2016, some of the policy positions were completely flipped from the 2012 Romney Republican Party platform. And the the crisis the GOP is facing is that there are some there are true conservative ideologues in, in the GOP that believe in. In, in small government and certain fiscal conservatism, but they are realizing that their base of voters doesn't really identify with that stuff. They identify more with the culture issues that we found ourselves going back to again and again in America. And sometimes that's about, you know, guns or um, race politics. Um, if to this, to this same line of thought here. If mm-hmm. the if Biden wins in a big way, if Democrats take the Senate back in more than just a one mm-hmm. one seat majority, does the GOP have to recalibrate completely? Do you think that they will shed some of the Trumpism or do you think that they have as you you just said recognized this is the path for us? I don't know. I mean, I think that to me that's one of the most interesting questions that's going to well, be under big, debate. The biggest yeah, known yeah. unknown, right? What happens yeah. after? What do you I think mean, happens seeing... on day of? What do you think is going to happen on the day of the election? Are is are have have most people already voted, or are there going to be lines again on Tuesday? I think people should should be prepared to see lines and to probably in certain places stand in line for a while. And I think you know some of that is yes, certain states have closed polling places, probably with a plan to suppress the votes of. Um, people in Democratic areas, particularly minority areas. But also America just doesn't invest in its voting uh, equipment very well. So these machines break, you know, even in, I live in New York City. Um, New York is notorious for having terrible voting equipment and for having long lines. And sometimes those long lines, because of, you know, failures of of machines, do disenfranchise people unintentionally. So yes, I think we're going to see long lines. You know, our line that we've been trying to push at 538 is, do not expect to go to bed and know who the president is and do not expect to wake up the next morning and know who the president is. Think of it as election week or, you know, God forbid, even election month. That oh, this Lord. is not... <laughs> that we, that, do you think that, that's the... Do you think that it's likely we won't know on Tuesday? I mean, I know, I know. obviously, we need to be responsibly prepared to yeah. go to bed and not know, but the states that, the states that report the fastest are the Floridas and North Carolina. Correct. I mean, if Biden wins both of those, is it over? Um, that would be very good for him. <laughs> I think. Uh, <laughs> oh, girl, you are like a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not going to um, make you. I'm not going to hold any of this against you later. Don't worry. <laughs> I think that. Um, you know, actually, I like we were talking about this today. I was talking about this with our with our podcast host, Galen Druk, about like what time are we going to record our election night podcast. Oh, and my right. guess is like, I don't know, 2 a.m. You don't just need to something. go live. Just be ready. <laughs> Get some caffeine. And the internet stay up can't with handle us live, Clay. <laughs> <laughs> would not be good. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, to go back to the conversation we were having earlier about state polls versus national polls, you know, Biden's looking really good in the national average. And frankly, he's looking pretty good on the state level in a lot of places. 
Um, and I think, you know, a, my biggest hope is that we will <clears throat> see adults in the room from both campaigns. Right. Well, and, that's a big, that's a pie in the sky <laughs> hope right there. <laughs> and, the, the, and that everyone will uh, stick to, stick to being responsible about this. And our hope in the media is that there will not be problems, um, you know, or extraordinary problems um, that, that we will be able to um, give people, if not a clear answer about who is president, then clear information about what steps are being taken to determine who the president is. Cause you know, some of this stuff could potentially, you know, filter its way into the court system because of the number of uh, mail-in ballots we're seeing. There's certainly a lot of, uh, lawyers from both the Democratic and Republican Party who are oh, we're talking we're talking on this podcast right <laughs> now about Goliath. who do yeah. we have next week? Do we have someone to recap the election, or do we have attorneys on as our guests to talk yeah. about the the ensuing um, legal battles? But I keep going back to 2012 when I had settled in on the night of the election in 2012 mm-hmm. for a very very long night and ended up being like. Oh, well, shit, that was fast. I mean, we we found out that Obama won re-election because he won Florida pretty quickly. And um, I'm st- I, I told people personally, and I, I'm about as educated at, at this as my dog is, so that's none. But I did tell people in J- June of 2016 that I anticipated Trump would probably win. That's probably because I have mm. spent my entire life in North Carolina and yeah. see that we kind of shift with the wind here and yeah. typically go to the right. I saw it coming in 2016. I, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to an early night. <laughs> and I know and that's I not that, what you're supposed to say. No, but, <laughs> but I think it's what I feel. <laughs> it's certainly, it certainly could be the case. And again, you know, I, I struggle, you know, with, with frankly what to say about this publicly, because listen, I want to manage expectations too. Right? Well, yeah, but also, you know, I, um, Again, I hope that, like, let's say the hypothetical Biden wins. I hope that the president would um, concede in that case. But I also, you know, a a thing that I think is happening in a lot of newsrooms, including ours, is talking through the real possibility that we do have a clear, factual winner on election night. And let's say that person is Joe Biden. But that the president, who has shown us over the course of four years, um, that he has the capacity to uh, spread Mr. Information right. that he that he could do that on election night. Again, I hope that doesn't happen. You, you very, very. <laughs> I think we all should be prepared for it. But a concession is not required by law. So right. that's right. what I say. <laughs> I want to jump exactly. into. I want to jump in real quick to our quick fire questions. We ask folks to send mm-hmm. in questions to our uh, guest every week, specifically for Claire this week. We had a few come in, several come in actually. Carl, well, um, Carl from Santa Fe has the same question that I have. Uh, it, he specifically says, 538 has become my oracle. Is that bad? <laughs> what, do you, what do you tell people like me? About, how do you warn them about spending too much time on the 538 website? Yeah. Well, for health reasons, I think people should get right. more vitamin D. Um, you know, it's like, I... I struggle with how to communicate this to people because, you know, we want those clicks. But no, I think, listen, I don't think a lot of stuff is going to change in the next week. We're recording this on a Tuesday. Like, I'm, I'm not anticipating any craziness happening. So why torture yourself, you know? Um, and and I clicking, also- <laughs> but not with stress. Take a Xanax and click. <laughs> but also, I mean, I think it's, it's some of it's, um, 
I realize that right now it's a lot of anxiety from from people who just want to see this election over with. Like, I think Democrat or Republican, a lot of Americans are just sick of this stuff, right? They want to get the election over with. Um, and so I think, you know, don't, you can, you can use us as, you know, your sort of mathematical predictors. But again, I also think that people should um, visualize what it would look like for their candidate not to win. Because as we, you know, that that is a, you know, a possibility and, and that your mind should also be prepared for that eventuality. So you, you know. said something last week on your podcast, I think, which yeah. was brilliant when people were asking about 538's role in this. And I think you said something to the effect of if you're looking for reassurance that Joe Biden will win, then listen to Pot Save America. <laughs> but if <laughs> Yeah, and I got in but, trouble for that on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, listen, I think it's, but actually it's, a, it's an interesting example because I think with the rise of Pod Save America and like I saw today that the, the Lincoln Project is uh, just signed right. with like a, um, a talent agency and is maybe going to do the kind of like centrist, right centrist version of Pod Save America potentially. Like those are uh, media organizations, but they are partisan media organizations. We right. are we are journalistic, right? That's our that's our game here. We're here to give you facts. We're here to give you measured facts. <laughs> we're but we're Americans probably be... don't want facts unless they agree with what they. But believe, yeah, and there's right? <laughs> and I think that there's an interesting there's an interesting confusion on the left because a lot of particularly like let's say listeners to the Five Thirty Eight Politics podcast and Pod Save America might well tend to skew college-educated and white, and therefore they're probably skew Democratic liberal, right? And they want some... Reassurance, yeah. Yeah, they want reassurance, and they because they listen maybe to these two politics podcasts, they maybe sometimes mush the two, <laughs> the two right. together. And my, my game is like, that's great. You should listen to that. That's totally fine. That's not my job. My job is not to make you... You know, rah rah. But I do want. I'm not trying to get you to predict anything here. Yeah, but it's. (laughs) But it is. It is an interesting, extremely 2020 uh, conundrum. And I and I think you know, there's a whole there's a whole probably interesting uh, reflective podcast to be done with like Nate or whomever about you know the actual effects that 538 has on people's political psyches. Well, they get pissed because you don't give them what I mean. That's that's sort of what we expect from our news now we expect it to reinforce the what we want it to reinforce and i'm I, that's why i like 538 because i know you don't so i appreciate that um we got a whole bunch of good questions okay. and i usually only do three but i want to try to get to a few more um kathy from austin asked is joe biden making hillary's mistake by not campaigning in the right places um I He's not doing Wisconsin and Michigan anymore, is he? He's down in uh, Georgia and Florida and Iowa, correct? Yeah, I think Biden, it's, it's a different election because of COVID. So he's certainly just, just been around less. Right. But frankly, he's doing better in those, you know, better in those states. And I know that that kind of triggers a lot of people's 2016 acid reflux when we talk about Wisconsin and why isn't he campaigning there enough or something. But I, I do think... Um, that That's not why probably- Hillary lost, so I'm not going to get triggered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think they feel better um, about their standing in the state, and I would guess that they have some internal numbers that probably show pretty rosy. This is me totally speaking right. off the cuff, but showing some things that that are maybe rosier internal favorabilities for Biden versus Clinton, and that probably has lots of stuff to do with the fact that he's a 
sort of predictable older white male moderate politician. Right. Clinton was the first woman. Isla or Isla, Isla, sorry, Isla from San Francisco asks, um, does voter registration have an effect on the vote? As I hear GOP have larger registrations than Dems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw this question coming up kind of a week ago when this was being reported out. What I would say to that is there's lots of interest from both parties here, but some of those GOP registration numbers could be a little bit misleading because the Democrats saw a lot of registrations in 2018. And also remember, they had a contested Democratic primary, so there would have been people registering to vote for that. Right. So there might be just some Demo- some Republicans who are kind of coming off the bench and saying, I got to register to vote. So so it's interesting, and it's, it, it certainly indicates the enthusiasm that everyone has for this election, but I wouldn't read too much into it. Are Dems, to that end, are Democrats, wait, are there any Democrats waiting to vote on election day? Or is are we expecting that Democrats have voted in early voting and that there's going to be a red surge on election day itself? I think a lot of Democratic constituencies still like to vote in person. The African-American community in particular likes, because of the history of the disenfranchisement right. of African-American votes count in America. My vote. Yeah, there's a lot yes. of people who will who will show up, you know, in person on that day. Also, you know, there's like, one of the reasons, one of the other things people should be prepared for is like, a lot of people show up at you know, whatever, 6.50, you know, 10 minutes before the polls close. <laughs> and we, and, you know, the, the busy people and, and, you know, we have to, to wait. The undecideds to, who took they, that long to decide. <laughs> exactly. But so, yeah, I think you, I still think you see a lot of Democrats voting in person okay. on election. Gary from New Haven asks, is Trafalgar a legitimate polling operation? I don't know what Trafalgar is, so I, I don't want to, uh, Speak out of my. They're the ones who. They're the ones who who predicted that that President Bush would President Trump would win in Wisconsin and Michigan, and I think that I think that five thirty eight has them ranked as (laughs) has them graded. A, but they tend to they I'm tend seeing, to skew Republican, right? I'm seeing a. I, I just googled that. Nate Silver blasts Trafalgar as crazy. So I there think you that's go. The There's your answer, Gary. <laughs> There's your answer. Okay. And then the last one, Henry from Nashville asks what all of us want to know. What state should we watch on election night? Which state specifically are you, Claire, going to watch the closest? I mean, I'm watching Ohio just out of pure. I'm from Ohio and, and I'm kind go. of, uh, I've written a lot of stories about some of the uh, Obama Trump voters there. And while Trump is is up in Ohio, I think it would be really notable if he did win. So I'm personally keeping an eye on that. But, you know, Florida How for close sure. is it at the moment? Uh, let's see. Give me a second. Um, my a little interesting trivia, my campaign from my congressional campaign, my field director is now running the coordinated campaign for Ohio. Oh, really? So I am, yeah, I'm rooting, I'm rooting for Joe for many reasons right now, but if you're North Carolina, Ohio connection kind of makes sense. Currently uh, Biden has a 42 in a hundred chance of winning Ohio. Trump wins in 58 out of a hundred scenarios. So So it's not that close. That's, that's, Oh no, I'm sorry. It's not, it's It's, not that hard to win for, for Biden. No. Yeah. And so I think like to me, it would, that would be really interesting, but I think people should kind of keep their eyes on, the Floridas and Pennsylvanias <laughs> of the well, world. Pennsylvania is a state where we definitely don't expect to see a result by election night. Yeah, right? I think because yes, they're not think... even voting, uh, counting their absentee ballots. And yeah, stuff. but but my answer is like there's a lot of really interesting states on the map this this 
turn around. So I'm, I'm going to be watching like, whichever state gets to 270. <laughs> That's what I'm going to be looking for. You hit 270, and well, I don't care who you are, we'll be good to go. Uh, Claire Malone, I honestly could talk to you for another hour. You have got to be the busiest. You and your 538 friends have got to be the busiest people on the planet this week outside of the campaigns themselves. So thank you for what you're doing to help educate us all um, on this the longest week in American history. <laughs> of course. This was a delight, Clay. Thank you for well, the wonderful thank you. conversation. I appreciate it. We will um, hopefully come back and talk to us when there's less stress uh, yeah. in, in all of our lives. So um, <laughs> if you like the podcast, please uh, rate it, subscribe to it, like it, whatever you're supposed to do on podcasts, you know, all the buttons on Apple and Spotify. I don't know how that stuff works. I'm too old, <laughs> but I'm glad you're listening. And we'll be back next week with our first post-election uh, episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? Thank you again, Claire. This was of seriously course. I could keep going forever, but they like an hour. So, um, oh my gosh, you should, you. you should like, you should be, you should work for 538. I'm like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I just run my mouth, run my mouth. <laughs> and I'm stupid enough to ask a lot no, of questions. No, 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 no. Hey, are you, are you ever going to run for office again? Is this like uh, in this? <laughs> not in this climate. I sure as hell am not. Yeah. <laughs> we'll yeah, see. Yeah. I, 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 I I'm not saying no to it, uh, I, but I'm not looking for anything right now. I mean, I, I just, I think I'm not, I'm not willing to be partisan enough. Um, yeah. I, I think I'd have a harder time getting through a primary these days than I would a general, just because while I am very progressive yeah. um, on policy, I just don't have the energy or the time to scream bloody murder about every time Trump goes golfing. I mean, you know what? Yeah. Let him go golfing more. The more he's out of the office, the more happier I am. Just run, <laughs> you know, go run for like city councilor or something. I have a, uh, one of my brothers is a uh, is a city councilor in my. That's hometown. really where people get stuff done, right? It is completely where they get stuff done, yeah. and it's like you know, I think I think he's sort of like, you know, should I run for state senate? And it's kind of like, don't. I mean, that's re- state senate and legislature is really the places where I mean, and people don't quite because. And actually, maybe we'll have you back at some point to talk about that media conglomeration thing because that is something that I don't think people realize. I mean, we really are yeah. fifty different countries. Yeah. Who happen to be in a European Union-like union as <laughs> the United States, right? But because Completely. the media, because we're only watching our, you know. Rachel Maddow's and Chris Cuomo's and Sean Hannity's every night, we forget that really the stuff that's affecting your life is happening in your state. It's yeah. just you don't have a nighttime opinion host talking about your state legislature. Right. So um, I, let's have come back sometime and we can make that a topic because I, I would love to. Fascinating. Yeah, but I would love to. This is really let's fun. Hope the, let's hope the world's still turning come <laughs> November 30th. So <laughs> thanks yes, so much yes. again, Claire. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you can hear me. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. 
What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people... Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. And asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app.